Our speaker tonight, Janice Nimura, is the winner of a 2017 Public Scholar Award from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the author of Daughters of the Samurai, A Journey from East to West and Back, a New York Times notable book. She's joining us to discuss her new work, The Doctors Blackwell, How Two Pioneering Sisters Brought Medicine to Woman and Women to Medicine. The title pretty much says it all. We're going to enjoy a story of two tenacious visionary physicians who exploded the limits of possibility for women in their time. Welcome, Janice. Thank you so much, Ladrina. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for joining us tonight. Um, as these nights get longer, I fear that the appetite for more Zooming is going to decrease. I'm going to share my screen and get some pictures up. Here we go. Okay. So here we go. Um, so the Blackwells, if the name is familiar to you at all, uh, you've probably heard of Elizabeth Blackwell. Uh, it's usually followed in your mind by the phrase first woman doctor. Uh, maybe you had a book about her when you were little. Uh, she was the first woman in America to receive a medical diploma in 1849. And her sister, Emily, followed her into medicine to become the third woman with a medical degree in 1854. Together, they founded the New York Infirmary for Indigent Women and Children and then the Women's Medical College of the New York Infirmary. So I encountered the Blackwell story for the very first time ever five years ago. Uh, and this was shocking to me. I uh, was born, raised, and still live in the city where they practiced and established their institutions. Uh, I attended a proudly feminist all-girls school from the age of five. I was the math science kid there. I graduated with the um, intention of pursuing medicine, although I swerved, clearly. Um, how had I never heard of them? How, how was that possible? So I went looking for them. And I discovered that they're not hard to find, let's get these going, on the children's biography shelf, um, where there are many versions of the Blackwell story, usually fe featuring just Elizabeth, maybe mentioning Emily, but not much. They have a lot in common, these stories. They all have illustrations, and the illustrations always feature a slim, attractive young woman in nice clothes with a stethoscope bending solicitously over a grateful patient. This is a chapter book version from the 40s. Um, this is a middle grade version in my daughter's school library once upon a time. Again, nice clothes, stethoscope, grateful patient. Um, this is the children's book version, slightly younger, perkier version of Elizabeth with bows. Um, but there's the stethoscope in her bag waiting for her to grow up. Um, well, the Blackwell sisters looked like this. Um, and in the 1840s and 50s, when they were as young as the women pictured in these storybooks, um, stethoscopes looked like this, mostly. Uh, and the Blackwells were never photographed holding them. So it was very clear that these children's versions were incomplete, that they were sanitized, that all of the complexity and the contradictions of these women's lives had been kind of polished away. Um, and I was curious about what they, what the real story was. So I started to follow them deeper into the archives and, and became really eager to reintroduce them to the present in all of their complicated glory, not um, just as perky, pretty, adorable heroines. Um, I wanted to know their whole story, not just what fits in a, in a, in a storybook. So what is that story? Uh, briefly, the 
Blackwells, eight out of the nine Blackwell siblings were born in Bristol, England. Um, they came to America as children in 1832. They were the sons and daughters of a man who was something of a paradox. He had made his money in the sugar refining industry. Uh, Bristol was a sugar capital. And in his spare time, he was an ardent abolitionist. Don't think about that for a second. Um, he had profited from a commodity that depended on, on the exploitation of enslaved labor, um, and yet he abhorred the institution of slavery. He was enough of a progressive to have educated his children, boys and girls, to the same degree. And on the strength of a dream, the dream of making sugar from sugar beets in the north without enslaved labor, he moved his family all the way from Bristol uh, to New York first for a few years, and then all the way out really to the edge of the known universe, Cincinnati in 1838, hoping to find a way to grow sugar beets. And there, uh, without really having finished unpacking, he died, leaving a widow and now nine children, ranging in age from six to young adulthood, uh, with approximately $20. Uh, his final lesson to his daughters being that a husband is no guarantee of security. None of his five daughters ever married. Um, so now you have the nine Blackwell siblings, hyper-intelligent intellectual types, um, who really have kind of a sense of themselves as a clan against the world because they have um, they have a lot to struggle against now. They turn toward each other. Uh, they kind of drive each other crazy, but they kind of love each other more than anyone else in the world. So as a great gift to the biographers of the future, they never stop writing to each other about each other. Um, this was a great reason why this was a great project. Um, this is a example of what you're up against when you want to um, research the Blackwells. In the earlier part of the 19th century, postage and paper were extremely expensive. And what you did when you wanted to keep in touch with your extended family was you fill the page and then you rotate it 90 degrees and then you fill it again. Sometimes you flip it over and do it again on the back. So this is a letter to Elizabeth Blackwell from her brother Henry in 1844. Um, Henry actually had exquisite handwriting. So this is a pretty easy to read example. I happen to love this kind of decoding. Um, other people, I think, don't share that love. <laughs> um, but it was, it was, it was, you know, it, it's always said that if you uh, are attacking biography, if you're not drowning in material, you probably don't have enough. I was definitely drowning in material. Um, so Elizabeth was born in 1821. She had her 200th birthday last month on February 3rd. She was voraciously brilliant socially quite awkward, but blessed with a healthy sense of self-worth. She admired the transcendentalist writer and editor, Margaret Fuller, um, who at that moment in the mid 1840s, when Elizabeth was coming of age uh, as, as a young adult, had just published a bestseller called Woman in the 19th Century. And in this book, Margaret Fuller argued that humanity was not going to achieve a new level of enlightenment until women unleashed their power and proved their independence. Uh, Margaret Fuller, Fuller believed that women could be anything they wanted to be. It wasn't a matter of sex. It was a matter of talent and effort. And if you tried hard enough and you were good enough, you could be whatever you wanted. A woman could be a sea captain, said Margaret Fuller. And this was definitely part of the reading material in the Blackwell parlor. And it resonated with Elizabeth. And she really thought of herself as someone whose life might 
be able to prove Margaret Fuller's point. She thought of herself as someone who might be a beacon to other women and, and help prove that, um, that women could, could, could uh, claim their own independence. So how to do that? Well, she chose medicine. She chose it not because she loved science or because she wanted to take care of people. She thought sickness was a form of weakness. She thought bodily functions were disgusting. Um, she certainly wasn't very interested in taking care of people. She didn't really like people very much, but she loved humanity. Uh, and medicine was redefining itself, both scientifically and institutionally in this moment. Uh, to this point, it had been considered more of a trade, the trade of midwives and barber surgeons. Now, increasingly, it was a profession, a profession of men who were legitimate by virtue of having earned a medical degree at a medical school. And increasingly, there were medical schools in America. Um, so Elizabeth thought to herself, if I can find my way into a medical school, and attend all the lectures and pass all the examinations, who can argue that I am not as qualified as any man to be a doctor? It was sort of gonna be a, a test. She was gonna make herself into a test case. Um, and as this cartoon from the 1820s suggests, medical school in this moment, now the 1840s, um, was not the you know, overwhelmingly challenging endeavor that medical school is today. Medical school then consisted of two identical 16 week terms of lectures that you repeated one year after the next. Um, there was a very little practical exposure. There was a little dissection if you were lucky, but mostly you could graduate from medical school without ever having touched a living patient. It was pretty clear to Elizabeth that if she could find her way into a medical school, she would not have much trouble finding her way through medical school. Um, so she took on this challenge. And at the age of 26, after a sheaf of rejections, she finally was admitted to Geneva Medical College, a tiny provincial medical school at the tip of Seneca Lake uh, in the Finger Lakes region of New York State. Um, the very idea of a woman studying at medical school was outrageous, not just because the idea of a woman doctor was outrageous, but because what kind of woman would choose to study the processes of the body in the company of men. That was scandalous. Um, Geneva admitted her, well, if you read Elizabeth's account of it in her memoir 50 years later, it sounded just like Geneva had been more enlightened than the other medical schools and had sent her an acceptance letter, whereupon she triumphantly bought a train ticket and made her way to Geneva. Um, what really happened was slightly more of a farce. Um, Elizabeth had been studying in Philadelphia under the, under the tutelage of a sympathetic and rather prominent physician who had written her a letter of recommendation. And the faculty at Geneva College, again, a small rural provincial place, um, they weren't quite bold enough to reject this endorsement from this Philadelphia physician out of hand. So they punted. The faculty took Elizabeth's application and they brought it to their students. And they said, okay guys, if any one of you doesn't want a woman to come and join us, she won't come, but it's up to you. And the students being a rather boisterous and unpolished group, I mean, medicine was sort of what you studied if you weren't smart enough for the law. Um, they recognized two things. One, that their professors were cowards in not being able to reject this request themselves. 
And secondly, that they now had an opportunity to really make mischief. So at a meeting of the students that night, uh, they basically bludgeoned into submission anybody who didn't think Elizabeth Blackwell should join them. And the next morning returned a, a triumphant and unanimous yes to the faculty. And then they forgot all about it because they assumed that it was a prank, a practical joke cooked up by a rival medical school maybe. And they forgot about it until three weeks later when Elizabeth Blackwell walked into the lecture hall. Um, this is the, the Geneva Medical Department on the left as it once looked and on the right uh, where it used to stand uh, on the modern campus of what is now Hobart and William Smith Colleges. Um, once Elizabeth was admitted and began to, to really study medicine in, earne in earnest, she discovered that even though her first loves had been history and philosophy, medicine was more than enough of an intellectual challenge, and she really began to warm to the subject. Um, she immediately earned the respect of her fellow students and professors who quickly realized that she was um, more diligent and more talented than any of them. Um, to the people of Geneva, New York, she continued to be a bit of a sideshow freak. They figured she was either wicked or insane to be pursuing this path, but she did impress the people within the college community. Um, in between her school terms, she went back to Philadelphia and found her way to an assistantship at Blockley Almshouse, uh, which at the time was the largest municipal hospital in the country. Uh, it was her, her bedroom there was off the female syphilis ward. Blockley was where you ended up if you were right at the end of the road. It was a great place to witness illness. It was not a great place to observe healing. Um, if you ended up there, you, you really, um, you were in, in wretched shape. Um, there was an insane wing, there was a syphilis wing, uh, and, and it was also um, a quarantine hospital. So it was Elizabeth's first introduction really to the connection between poverty and disease, the connection between venereal disease and the plight of women. Um, it was also her first introduction to epidemic disease up close because this is the summer of 1848 and waves of refugees are arriving from Ireland and continental Europe carrying what was then called ship fever, uh, typhus. Typhus victims overflowed the beds at Blockley. And Elizabeth actually ended up writing her thesis on epidemic typhus, um, continuing this orientation in her mind toward ideas about public health. Uh, she graduated upon her return to Geneva that year at the top of her class. Uh, her thesis published as the lead article in the Buffalo Medical Journal in the winter of 1849. Really, she was extraordinary, unprecedented at every level. So now she has a medical degree and almost no practical experience, except for what she had picked up in Philadelphia, and she needs more. So she does what a lot of American medical graduates did then, which was to go to Europe, where the really major medical, medical education centers were. She goes to Paris. Paris at this moment is really a leading center of medical education, state-sponsored, wonderful uh, courses for free to anyone who was a man. Um, Elizabeth refused to dress in drag and pretend to be a man. She really insisted that she, um, you know, that, that she complete this achievement as a woman. So she ends up here at La Maternité, which is a public maternity hospital housed in an old convent, which still stands. Um, she ends up here at a place which is a state-sponsored school for the training of young midwives from all over France. So young women would come here and live as students to study. And even though Elizabeth is already an MD, 
she decides to become a student here herself and live in the dormitory um, for the sheer virtue of watching the incredible volume of obstetric cases that pass through here. She is going to learn stuff here. Um, in 1849, if you have any money at all, you deliver a child at home. So the women here, again, are the dregs of society. Um, many of them prostitutes, many of them infected with venereal disease. Um, Elizabeth continues to learn something about public health here and then uh, undergoes a crisis that changes the shape of her career, if not its direction. Um, uh, if you are a baby born to a woman with gonorrhea, in passing through the birth canal, a baby can contract something called gonococcal conjunctivitis, an eye infection. And Elizabeth is tending to one of these infants early one morning when some of the liquid she's using to wash its infected eyes splashes into her own face and she contracts gonococcal conjunctivitis, which today, though not a joke, would be easily treatable with antibiotics. Then, before antibiotics, it was a catastrophe. Um, she is immediately confined to bed in the very hospital where she was working, and the fate of her vision hangs in the balance for several weeks. Um, she is put under the care of one of the attending physicians, someone who has, she has befriended, the wonderfully named Dr. Hippolyte Blot, um, and this is one of those moments where as a biographer, you have multiple accounts of the same event and you need to kind of weave them together to find something that approximates the truth such as it is. Um, this is how Elizabeth wrote about her crisis um, with her eye infection in her memoir 50 years later. Ah, how dreadful it was to find the daylight gradually fading as my kind doctor bent over me and removed with an exquisite delicacy of touch the films that had formed over the pupil. I could see him for a moment clearly, but the sight soon vanished and the eye was left in darkness." It sounds kind of like a romance novel, and I think Dr. Blow fits the bill of leading man quite nicely. Um, at the same time, and by a stroke of luck, Anna, uh, Elizabeth's eldest sister, Anna Blackwell, happened to be in Paris when she fell ill. And Anna rushed to her bedside um, to help tend to her sister. Now, Anna, uh, as this portrait wonderfully suggests and confirms, was in fact a class A drama queen um, and a journalist by trade and a hypochondriac by temperament. Um, so she spent her days at the bedside of her sister trying to help and her evenings writing extensive letters back to the Blackwell clan in Cincinnati about the state of Elizabeth's eye. Here's what Anna wrote. The pupil presents just now the appearance of one of those little misshapen blackberries of three granulations and half dried up that one sees so often on some scrubby little bush. If you can fancy one such in dull looking lead, you have just the appearance of this poor eye. Uh, so that's um, another account and somewhere in between is um, what was happening to Elizabeth. She eventually lost one eye um, and was fitted for a glass prosthetic that she wore for the rest of her life. If you look closely at this portrait, you can see that there's a slight asymmetry in her gaze, but she never spoke of her disability. And there were plenty of people who didn't realize that she had one. Um, it did, however, focus her more, even more intensely toward public health and away from actual medical practice. Surgery was now close to her um, and even reading could be painful. So um, this was focusing her more and more toward thinking about medicine rather than necessarily practicing it. Um, 
Did she return to Cincinnati to relax and convalesce and re reclaim her health? No, she was Elizabeth Blackwell and seriously made of steel. Um, she went on once she had gotten used to her new glass eye to London uh, to continue her training at another public hospital, St. Bartholomew's. Um, and there in London, she made the fateful acquaintance introduced by mutual friends to Florence Nightingale, who in 1851, at this point, um, was not the global celebrity, the lady with the lamp, the heroine of the Crimean War that was several years out. Um, Florence Nightingale at this moment was a young woman, um, a year older than Elizabeth, basically the same age, who was under a lot of pressure from her family to settle down and get married, but who had big dreams of making a difference in the field of health. Um, I like to think that this encounter with Elizabeth Blackwell in this moment was something of a catalyst and an inspiration for Nightingale. Uh, here's this woman, this American, who has left her family behind in America, uh, along with any thought of getting married or settling down, uh, and has earned a medical degree and is traipsing all over Europe getting medical experience. Elizabeth Blackwell is proof that a woman can entertain big dreams about a life in health. Um, and she and Florence Nightingale really hit it off. They have this sort of rapturous friendship at first, um, spend a lot of time together, lots of discussions about ideas about hygiene and prevention. Um, these are new ideas at the time. They eventually discover that they have a basic misalignment, which is that um, Elizabeth Blackwell is determined to prove that women can be doctors. And Florence Nightingale believes that they should be nurses. Uh, they never converge on this point. Uh, it always remains something between them. Um, but they do continue to correspond throughout their lives. And Elizabeth Blackwell does use many of Florence Nightingale's ideas in her later work. So now her training finished, Elizabeth chooses to return to New York to set up her practice. And she assumes that it will be a snap now to attract a, 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 a thriving group of patients, women who want to, to confide their intimate ailments to a female physician rather than trying to talk about them with a man. Um, and she gets to New York and she finds a place to be and she puts out her shingle and no one comes. Why? Well, in 1852 now, um, the very phrase female physician does not mean bright young woman with a medical degree. It means something more like Madame Rastel, the notorious Fifth Avenue abortionist, uh, caricatured here as a baby-eating demon. Um, female physician meant someone who worked in the shadows, in, on the wrong side of the law. Uh, if you were someone who was consulting a female physician, there was the taint of scandal about you. Um, nice middle-class women did not do that. So it was very hard for Elizabeth to attract patients. And she languished, um, sort of becalmed now and dismayed that all of this work she'd put in was not leading to a thriving uh, livelihood. Meanwhile, she had anointed her sister, Emily, five years younger, to follow her into medicine. She knew that being the first woman doctor was going to be a lonely and difficult path and she wanted company. The Blackwells tended to think more highly of each other than of anyone else in the world. So she wanted another Blackwell and surveying her four sisters, she chose the one who was next youngest to her and most brilliant. And in fact, Emily really was more naturally drawn to natural science than Elizabeth was. 
Um, you would think that she would have had an easier time finding a place in medical school because her sister had just done it. But in fact, it was even harder. It was harder first because the men's medical schools, having noticed that Elizabeth was wildly successful there, barred their doors even more firmly against women. Um, and secondly, around the time that Elizabeth was studying in Europe, the very first women's medical colleges had begun to open in response to the growing interest in medical education from women. There was one in Boston and there was one in Philadelphia. So as long as women's medical colleges existed, that meant that the men had an easy time rejecting women. They could just say, go there, that's for you, don't come here. Uh, Emily, however, did not want a degree that was any less valuable or hard won than the one her sister had earned. So she struggled and struggled and ended up first starting at Rush Medical College in Chicago, had a great first year there and then the trustees of Rush got cold feet and said, please don't come back. We really don't want you here. Um, Emily did not give up and pivoted to Cleveland Medical College and finished up there. Cleveland Medical College has since evolved into uh, Case Western. So it's 1854 and she has her medical degree and now she needs some practical experience. So off she goes to Europe. She goes to Edinburgh and she attaches herself to the practice of James Young Simpson, who is one of the most prominent physicians in Britain. He is a physician to the queen. He is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Edinburgh. He is the man who has just discovered the anesthetic qualities of chloroform. Um, he has, the, the story goes that he discovered that by passing a decanter of chloroform around at his dining table, whereupon his friends all burst into hysterical laughter and passed out under the table. Um, so the story goes. He is a bit of a showman, and uh, I think he enjoyed the shock value of having a female physician among his assistants. That said, he admired Emily and respected her abilities and taught her a great deal. Um, he had a gynecological obstetric practice, mostly wealthier women. He was a pioneer of the pelvic exam, which was startling to Emily at first, but then she grew to respect its diagnostic power. Um, he taught her the use of instruments like these, the, the, the pessary, which would have been inserted into the cervix in cases of uterine prolapse, which were all too common in women who had had too many pregnancies. Um, below that is an instrument that he invented, the uterine sound, which was a graduated probe used to measure the dimensions of the cervix. Emily was learning to use these herself and, and then writing about them furiously back to Elizabeth languishing in New York. You can see those two instruments sketched at the side of this letter um, with descriptions of how to use them. Um, from the start, I wanted this book to be a double biography. I didn't want it to be just the story of Elizabeth Blackwell, first woman doctor, because I really believe that it's the story of them as sister doctors that is the point. I don't think either of them would have gotten where they got um, without the other one. Um, but there is just more material about Elizabeth Blackwell. She was the first, uh, she wrote more, more was written about her. So what do you do when you wanna tell a double portrait um, but you don't have as much material on the second subject. Uh, one of the things you can do is get out of the library uh, and start following them around and really try to follow in their footsteps, see what they describe, try to feel it also. Um, so I went to Edinburgh. I know, poor me. Um, it was a wonderful trip. 
And so I followed Emily around everything she wrote about her months there, I tried to experience myself. So this is 52 Queen Street, where she would have come every day to work in Simpson's consulting rooms. It was the only house in the row with an extra story because his household and his practice and his circle of friends was just bursting at the seams. Um, the door was open, as you see, as on the day that I walked by for this picture. So in the spirit of following in the footsteps, I walked in. Um, it's actually a drug counseling center now, so it, I wasn't exactly trespassing, but um, I got to wander around for a little while before somebody asked me what I was doing there and asked me to wander out again. But even in that brief glimpse, you get a sense of what someone's daily life was like. The, the building is... Um, some of it is is very much intact. So in you know in the 1850s, Emily would have seen would have walked up this staircase and passed James Young Simpson's Latinized initials worked into the banister. This at once tells you something about what it felt like to be Emily, and also what it was like to be Simpson. What kind of guy puts his initials in his banister? It, it, these are illuminating details, and you collect as many of them as you can find. Um, I went to the Royal College of Surgeons, which has a wonderful. History of Medicine Museum with lots of Simpson artifacts, including, um, this is my notebook because they wouldn't let me take pictures, but on the left there, Simpson's pocket pill case that he would take on house calls. It says, please return to 52 Queen Street under the lid. Um, below that, his monaural stethoscopes in ivory and rosewood. Um, I liked to imagine that maybe Emily had actually used one of those very ones um, when she was examining one of his patients. Um, they even had the decanter for the chloroform. Um, Emily was really learning to be a doctor in Edinburgh. Um, she was getting experience. She was learning from the best. Um, this did not protect her, however, from the kind of snark that, um, that Elizabeth had already come in for from the press. Um, this is a caricature from the London satiric newspaper Punch from 1856, um, the end of Emily's time in Europe. Uh, it's meant to depict Emily on the right uh, in the scandalous bloomer costume of the women's rights activists, and sidebar, Emily was not really somebody who considered herself a women's rights activist. Those, that was a different group entirely. But anyway, here's Emily shown in bloomers with a ridiculous hat and a rather mannish profile, squinting through spectacles at the only patient who would consult a, women do a woman doctor, a lapdog, um, and the lapdog himself clutched in the arms of a much more conventionally feminine, beautiful maiden. Um, the accompanying article said something like, women doctors are only good for taking better care of their husbands and daughter and, and husbands and children. And we hope that Dr. Blackwell will soon recognize that and settle down. Uh, luckily, both Emily and Elizabeth were very good at ignoring this kind of silliness. So then Emily has finished her training. She has also gone on to London and Paris and she finally makes it back to New York to join Elizabeth. Uh, and together in 1857, they open the New York uh, Infirmary for Indigent Women and Children um, in this building, which still stands in Greenwich Village on the corner of Bleecker and Crosby Streets. Uh, they are joined, since this is a Boston crowd, I must also point out that they are also joined by a third female physician, Marie Zakshevska, um, who is a protege of Elizabeth's. Um, the three of them together found this hospital, which is the first hospital staffed by women, intended both to um, give free medical care to poor women who are now able to consult a doctor of their own sex, but also intended to be a place for the slowly growing number of female medical graduates to come and get practical instruction. 
the reason I mentioned Marie Zakshevska is that um, it quickly became clear that three incredibly powerful women doctors were too many for this tiny hospital. And um, the Blackwells um, found that they weren't happy working alongside Dr. Zakshevska. And she eventually went to Boston where she came to teach at the Female Medical College in Boston and helped to found the New England Hospital for Women and Children. Um, this is one of those moments in the book of um, uh, a certain degree of misogyny among women that I think is an important theme in this story. Anyway, um, the building is being restored by its owner who is deeply inspired by the Blackwell story and has known about it a lot longer than I have. Uh, I got to be friendly with her and she let me come inside where they're restoring the building and it was quite exciting to see the brickwork, the hearths, the rafters, the sash windows that would have been what the Blackwells saw as part of the, this was this was the second floor ward of their hospital. Um, I love moments like this where it feels like there's not a lot of room between you and the ghosts. Uh, as you might expect, having just founded a hospital uh, in 1857, uh, the Blackwells were involved in the Civil War effort. So when the first shots were fired in 1861, they uh, called a meeting of their don donors and supporters in their own living room and drafted this appeal that ran in the New York Times an appeal to the women of New York and especially to those already engaged in preparing against the time of wounds and sickness in the army. There was a lot of chaotic energy being focused at the Union cause and it needed focusing, it needed channeling. Uh, in response to this appeal, thousands of women converged on Cooper Union um, for a meeting out of which grew an organization called the Women's Central Association of Relief uh, out of that organization evolved the U.S. Sanitary Commission. So you can kind of draw a straight line from the Blackwell's parlor to the most important civilian organization of the Civil War. Um, Elizabeth and Emily emerged as the leaders of the committee charged with um, finding and vetting and training young women to be nurses at the front, and they threw themselves into this work. It really felt like the kind of thing Margaret Fuller was talking about, men and women standing shoulder to shoulder, engaged in um, efforts toward a great and glorious cause. Um, and they put in a, a hard year of work finding and training nurses, but quickly became disillusioned and, and a little dismayed and frustrated because it became clear that men weren't necessarily interested in working shoulder to shoulder with female physicians. Uh, that was sort of a step too far for a lot of people. Um, they found their infirmary excluded from the list of hospitals charged with training nurses in New York. Um, the leadership position in Washington went to Dorothea Dix, someone with no medical training. Um, Elizabeth called her the meddler in chief. And eventually Elizabeth and Emily withdrew their support from the war in frustration and turned their attention to their next project. Um, their next project, which was somewhat ironic. Um, remember, they had never intended for women and men to study, for women to study medicine separately from men. They thought the women's medical colleges were um, beside the point. They had assumed that their own success in men's medical colleges would have opened those colleges to women, but they didn't. And instead, women's medical colleges opened, and the Blackwells found that those colleges were, were turning out an inferior um, graduate. They really thought those institutions were mediocre. Um, but what to do? Um, the men were not admitting the women because the women had these other colleges to go to. So in the end, they changed their minds. 
uh, Elizabeth and Emily did, and decided to found a women's medical college of their own, but make it better, better than even the men's colleges they had attended. So their college was three terms instead of two. It had progressive curricula that where courses built on each other and weren't repeated. Um, they had practical training because they had an infirmary attached to their college. So that was their sort of the, the, the apex of their partnership was the founding of this women's medical college in 1869. So that's sort of the arc of their professional lives as partners. Um, personally, their lives were just as interesting. Both sisters adopted daughters. Um, Emily lived with her female partner and fellow surgeon, Elizabeth Cushier for the last several decades of her life. Um, two of their brothers, Henry and Sam, Sam married two of the most prominent feminists of the day, Lucy Stone, the women's suffrage activist, and Antoinette Brown, the first woman in this country to be ordained as a minister. Um, to complicate the story, Elizabeth and Emily did not feel a whole lot of sisterhood with these trailblazing sisters-in-law of theirs. Um, they were out of step with the emerging women's rights movement to a great degree. Um, Elizabeth particularly did not agree that suffrage should be the first priority of the women's movement. Um, to complicate matters even further, Elizabeth and Emily didn't always agree with each other about the role of a woman in medicine. Um, Elizabeth um, really started to believe more and more that a woman doctor's role was as a teacher armed with science, um, doing policy and public health more than actual practice. Emily was an accomplished surgeon and practitioner and medical professor and believed that a role of a woman doctor was to be as good at, the, at those things as any man. So as soon as their medical college was founded, um, just within a year, basically, the two sisters parted ways and lived on separate continents for the last 40 years of their lives. Uh, Elizabeth went back to England where she had always wanted to return and did a lot more writing and speaking than practicing um, in the service of moral reform and public health. Emily ran the college and the infirmary um, with great skill and success for the rest of her career. Um, in some ways, she sustained her sister's pioneering legacy at the expense of her own, because those institutions kept the name of Elizabeth Blackwell alive in New York long after she had left. Um, and today, very few people remember Emily's name, which is sort of poignant. Um, so that's the outline of the story. And this moment in particular, as we all obsess about public health and and celebrate the inauguration of our first female vice president. Um, it feels like a good moment for this story. Uh, I like to end with this picture. Um, this is a picture that's held in the collection of the Museum of the City of New York here in Manhattan. Um, if you Google Elizabeth Blackwell and go to images, it comes up every time. It comes up on accompanying articles. It comes up in documentary films. It's on the cover of at least one biography that I've seen. Um, this is a beautiful picture of a lovely young woman who seems to be gazing into an excited future. Um, it is not a picture of Elizabeth Blackwell. How do we know this? Well, if you flip it over, you see that it was taken at Dana's Photo Portrait Gallery on 14th Street and 6th Avenue, which didn't exist at that address until the mid 1880s when Elizabeth Blackwell was in her mid 60s. This of course is not a woman in her mid 60s. Um, you can see it right on the photo. Somebody, I believe that this, this is a photo of one of Elizabeth and Emily's nieces um, who might've been nicknamed Bessie. Somebody wrote Bessie Blackwell across the top of the photo. 
And somebody else trying to be helpful wrote, oh, Elizabeth Blackwell, first woman doctor of modern times. So the museum cataloged it as possibly Elizabeth Blackwell. Down below, somebody is already debunking that. You can see it, probably not since Dana is at 14th Street address circa 1885. So right there on the photo itself is proof that this is not Elizabeth Blackwell, yet the misidentification persists. Why? Well, this is how we like our heroines to look. We like them to be likable. We like them to be adorable. Um, we like them not to be prickly and complicated and sometimes ragged edged. Um, the Blackwells were not perky pretty people. They were not interested in pleasing anyone. They were complicated and prickly and imperfect and very real heroines. And those are the kind of women who change the world. Um, I think we all need to work harder at recognizing um, admirable qualities, even in people who aren't always admirable 100% of the time. Um, I came to love Elizabeth and Emily Blackwell for their flaws as much as for their triumphs. So that is the, the lightning version of the Blackwell story. I'd be very happy to answer some questions if there are any. Thank you. Okay, so First question is, by any chance did Emily run into Joseph Bell while she was in Edinburgh? Oh, good question. He was a, 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 a giant of medical education in Edinburgh. I don't think so. Her time in Edinburgh was, you know, by virtue of being a woman, she had managed to find sympathetic Simpson to help her out. Um, but outside of his practice, people like, like they thought of Elizabeth, thought of Emily sort of as a freak. Um, she attached herself to the maternity hospital and helped deliver babies there like, like Elizabeth had in Paris. But beyond that, um, she never mentioned much intersection with the other greats of, of the Edinburgh medical scene. Um, she, I think she got further than a lot of women would have, but not as far as any man would have in, in Edinburgh at that time. Alas. <laughs> Through your research and writing of this wonderfully interesting story, did you find yourself revisiting your original idea of becoming a doctor? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I firmly believe if you believe in quantum physics in a parallel universe, there is somebody who looks just like me who is a doctor and writes on the side. Um, <laughs> Uh, and what I did when I started this project, I promised myself that if I was going to write a book about women doctors, that I was going to watch babies being born. Now, I had seen two babies born, my own babies, but I wasn't really paying much attention at the time. Um, so I happened to have a wonderful friend who is an obstetrician at Bellevue Hospital here in New York, a hospital that figures in the Blackwell story. And, uh, you know, she is she is, you know, a direct legatee of the Blackwell legacy. Um, so I, I um, followed her around one day and, and watched two babies born uh, in, 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 in fairly intense circumstances um, and felt like I was, you know, connecting to that other me in the quantum universe. Um, so no, I don't, it didn't make me want to be a doctor, but it did make me want to um, understand it more deeply. I, I happen to have a daughter who's 20 who's pursuing that path, um, and I can see how steep and challenging it is, and I feel grateful that I get to dabble the way I do without having to um, work quite as hard as she's working. <laughs> Next question is, how long was the Women's Medical College in existence? Um, how many women graduated uh, the program? 
So that's a, an interesting question. The Women's Medical College was founded, remember, expressly because of the frustration that women could not find an excellent medical education. So it opened in 1869. And in 1899, uh, Johns Hopkins and Cornell began to admit women uh, to their medical classes. Not many, but they, they were welcome suddenly. And as soon as that happened, Emily Blackwell shut the medical college down. She said, it has served its purpose. This is why we were here. We were here until women could be admitted to mainstream medical schools and now they can and our, our, our work is done. The infirmary persisted for another century but she immediately shut down the college. So it had, its, its lifespan was about 30 years and it graduated several hundred women. A lot of whom went on to um, not just be teachers at other women's medical colleges but also to be missionary doctors. There were a lot of women who went far abroad with their skills. So you spoke or you touched upon their father a, a bit and their other and their other siblings. How was their relationship with their mother? <laughs> Good question. Um, Hannah Blackwell, the matriarch, yes. Um, <laughs> Hannah's calling was really motherhood. Um, what 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 so the Blackwells, all of them were idealists at some level, and they got that really from their father. Their father was a dissenter from the Church of England. He was this abolitionist dreamer. He really was an, uh, an iconoclast and an, an, an unorthodox thinker. He, he had a flexible mind. Um, their mother was a lot of, much more conventional. She, um, she was a mother of nine living children and several that didn't make it. Um, and her role in their lives as, as they went on was mostly to worry about whether they were going to church or not. Um, the letters from Hannah that you ended up re reading were generally pages of anxiety about what they were getting themselves into. So she was sort of the center of the domestic sphere. She was the, the, the heart of their clan. But as far as inspiration or even really support, she wasn't really there for them. She spent a lot of time um, kind of dithering about what they were getting themselves into, <laughs> interestingly. What became of the adopted children? So two very different stories there. Elizabeth uh, in the mid 1850s when Emily was in Edinburgh and, and Elizabeth was alone and quite lonely in New York, decided to change that. So she marched off to Randall's Island here in the East River uh, to the orphan asylum and plucked up a six-year-old or so uh, Irish orphan named Kitty Barry, who she brought home as a strange composite of ward slash daughter slash servant slash companion. Um, and she explicitly raised this child to be her companion, to keep her from loneliness. Um, and Kitty really fulfilled that role. She, I think, was quite grateful that she had been rescued. Um, but Elizabeth had her call her Dr. Elizabeth. Kitty did not call her mom. Um, and Kitty was never invited to consider things like marriage or even a profession. She was there to be by Elizabeth's side. And it was there's, there were some Gothic qualities to it. But at the same time, Kitty, who lived to a very old age, um, requ requested that her ashes be buried in Elizabeth's grave when she died. So it was an interesting relationship. Emily, um, once Elizabeth had moved back to England and she was sort of setting up her own household for the first time, um, adopted a baby, named her after her deceased mother, Hannah, called her Nanny. And um, this child called her mom, signed her letters with kisses and grew up to marry and give her four grandchildren. So it was a much more conventionally familial role. Um, Emily had much 
more of an easy time connecting to other people, I think, than Elizabeth did. Elizabeth really struggled with, with human connection. What do you think the Blackwells would think of healthcare today, and in particular, the increasing number of women physicians? I think they'd be very proud and pleased of the increasing number of women physicians. I think they would be bemused to recognize that those women physicians were still battling a lot of the same challenges that they had started out with. Um, the state of health today, um, I think they would certainly be appalled at the um, leadership during this pandemic because uh, they, are, they are people who understood the, the, the value of hygiene and prevention before the rest of the world in many ways. Um, hand washing would not have been a hard one for them to, to grasp. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I think they would have seen it in very different ways. You know, Elizabeth was much more about the idea level um, mm -hmm. and she would see big problems. Emily, I think would be fascinated by all of the innovations in technique and technology. How did Emily and Elizabeth support themselves financially through medical school and their continuing studies? Right. Um, the Blackwell family had this funny inversion, right? So they, the, the father dies, the family is in, is in peril. Um, the three oldest children are all female and they're in their early late teens, early 20s, and they immediately go to work as teachers. They found a school, they have it in, in their living room. Um, and then eventually they go off to teaching positions in other states, and they are constantly earning money. Um, they earn enough for their own tuition, they also earn enough to keep their family afloat. And then as their younger brothers come of age and go to work themselves, I think there's this funny um, gender inversion because the boys are grateful that the girls saved the day. And so they're unusually willing to support their sisters in these weird professional pursuits that they decide to take on instead of getting married and settling down. Um, the Henry and Sam, the next two brothers, definitely um, support their, their, their travels and, and their tuition. Uh, later, the youngest brother, George Washington, the one who was born in America, George Washington Blackwell, um, makes good in real estate and, and invests his sister's resources wisely, and that helps as well. But once they uh, are back in New York and have founded an institution, um, they are the beneficiaries of donations from a lot of uh, like-minded progressive types who wanna support this effort so that it becomes easier. It's never easy, but it becomes easier. So we have a viewer that's curious to know your thoughts on why Harvard did not admit women until 1945. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, it, it is, it is I, I don't know. I, I cannot see into the mind of that institution. But yes, they, uh, they did not. They, the, the word inexpedient would come up every time a woman tried to enroll. They would say it's inexpedient for a woman to be enrolled at this time. And that was that. I don't know. Did the Blackwells have any particularly illustrious graduates from the Women's Medical College? Yeah, um, they, hmm, the most illustrious uh, person connected to the Women's Medical College besides the Blackwells was Mary Putnam Jacoby, um, who was a leading pediatrician. Um, she studied with them a little bit. She did not graduate from the Women's Medical College in New York. She actually graduated from the Sorbonne. She was the first woman to take a degree there. But once she had taken it, she came back and became part of the faculty at the Blackwell's College for many years. She worked alongside Emily um, and was one of those rare women that they respected enough to think of as a true peer in medicine. Um, 
there are other, you know, many, um, you know, illustrious women whose names get lost in the mists of time because, um, you know, that's what happens. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, many of the pioneers, when you when you dig into their pasts, that's where they started out, either as students or as postgraduate trainees, including some of the earliest Black women doctors. Do you have any written words from Lucy trying to understand Elizabeth's negative op opinion of women's suffrage? That is an excellent question. I don't think Lucy cared a whole lot what Elizabeth thought of her. Um, I think Lucy was doing her thing and Elizabeth was doing her thing. Um, Elizabeth, it's interesting. Elizabeth was just a shade older than Lucy and I think was part of that, you often see that earliest level of feminists or, 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 of, or if not a feminist, but a female trailblazers who believe that the way to do it is to be so undeniably excellent that no one can resist you. That, that the world will bend toward you surely by virtue of being so good, so undeniably good at what you're doing. That being a noisy radical activist is not the way to do it. That's just, that's messy and unattractive. And what you should do is just be excellent. And that Elizabeth was just very much of that school and Lucy was an activist. She was more of a radical. She wore the bloomers in public and she read the proclamation at her own wedding with Henry about marriage equality. Um, this was very uh, unattractive to, to Elizabeth. Um, but I think they kind of um, grew to acknowledge that they weren't gonna change each other's minds and they both loved Henry and, uh, and that was that. Can you say more about the Bellevue Hospital connection? There may be a sign outside referencing Elizabeth Blackwell. Hmm. Elizabeth, I, although there were many Bellevue doctors who were allies and supporters of Elizabeth Blackwell's efforts, it was really Emily who had more, more of a connection to Bellevue because in the run up to her medical school career and in, this, and in, in between the two semesters, she actually did some observing and studying there. She was the first woman to be a student at Bellevue as a, as a sort of a training program. Um, but there were many Bellevue uh, physicians who supported the, the infirmary and the Women's Medical College either as professors or as um, examiners or even sometimes as uh, sources of second opinions. Um, yeah. Did Kitty move to England with Elizabeth? Eventually. Uh, she, Elizabeth went first. Kitty was, was, was very useful and popular with the, the extended Blackwell clan and she helped out. She should have was, you know, always wandering from household to household helping with whatever needed help. And so they hung on to her for a little bit because she was so useful. But finally, Elizabeth just said, I need you here. I need you to, I, essentially she said, I need you to come and love me. Um, and off, off Kitty went. And I think at some cost to herself because she was very attached, especially to um, the daughter of Henry and Lucy Stone, whose name was Alice Stone Blackwell, who went on to be a very prominent feminist herself. Um, but Alice Stone Blackwell and Kitty had a really intense um, sort of big girl, little girl relationship um, that is a, that, that, that's a novel in itself. So there was some pain there. We'll end on, on this question. Anything that didn't make it make it into the book? Any stories that you had wished or just couldn't make the cut? Well, there was, of course, there's all that good, gory Victorian medicine stuff. I mean, I, I got as many, you know, <laughs> blisters and leeches and, and opium and mercury as I could in there. Um, but of course, I love all the pathology and the cases and all that good stuff. Um, 
And there are also some wonderful kind of uh, true crime accounts of of abortionists in 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 late nineteenth century New York and Anthony Comstock and the anti profanity stuff and there's all that kind of good stuff that wasn't quite central enough to the story to warrant inclusion but I I I have a little I have, I have folders of stuff that that uh, maybe I'll drag out someday and make something else out of. 